0: Our Solving Water series of interviews with water experts outside Xylem continues with an episode that explores environmental policymaking, legislative procedure, and professional advocacy with one of the industry's most renowned, John Cronin, director of Blue Collab at Seidenberg School of Computer Science and Information Systems at Pace University, an adjunct professor. One thing that all our 2021 guests have in common is their unwavering passion for solving water, and Professor Cronin is no exception. Here's the discussion. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm your host, Amanda Holloway, and today I have the great opportunity to co-host with Jess Moyer, who's a senior scientist with Xylem's Advanced Technology and Innovation team and good friend to our guest, John Cronin. Jess moderated a panel discussion with John at Xylem's recent innovation technology and policy conference um, that was held for employees. For today's conversation, we'll have John share his views on policy related to the water industry and technology and of course, we're Xylem, or really any water professional fits in. So just to kind of kick things off, Jess, if you could share a little bit about what you do for Xylem with our audience, that would be great. And then we'll ask um, John to provide some background as well.
1: Great. Thanks, Amanda.
0: Hey, everyone. My name is Jess, Jess Moyer.
1: As Amanda said, I'm a senior scientist with our advanced technology and innovation team. And we're small. Um, a small team, central R&D team um, at and Xylem, and we're really, we're tasked with looking at like the next horizon for water technologies and, and water solution to solve, you know, critical and pressing problems. And sometimes that, you know, as our name suggests, sometimes that's a technology innovation, um, and like an electronics innovation or a sensor innovation, but sometimes it's a business model or a financial model. Um, and, you know, as we'll be talking about today, sometimes that innovation could come from the policy space. Um, so I'm a scientist by education and training, um, but, you know, it's a, it's a lot of fun and I think really interesting when, when we, on this team, we can kind of stretch our, our technical expertise um, to, you know, learn more about, about innovative commercial models and innovations in, in the policy and, and finance space. Um, so, yeah, I'll pass it over to John.
2: Hey, thanks for having me. I, I'm happy to be here. Uh, I'm John Cronin, and uh, I'm the director of the Blue Co-Lab at the Seidenberg School of Computer Science and Information Systems at Pace University. And uh, nobody's more surprised than I am that that's what I do right now. Uh, my background <laughs> is actually, <laughs> my background actually is environmental advocacy and policy over a a range but all with water uh, pollution investigator uh, state legislative committee member uh, staff member uh, as an, a lobbyist and advocate and um, I've been doing that work for over 40 years and you know I came to the position I have now because of a realization uh, over the course of that work that, many of our environmental problems, if not most of them, uh, are going to be solved by innovation. Uh, You can't stop pollution unless there's technology that treats pollution. Uh, You can't protect people's health from water pollution unless you can detect that pollution in a timely fashion. And from my point of view, um, my work in the environmental movement, which is long, uh, we haven't paid enough attention. the role of technological innovation so my my work at the blue collab at pace university involves training students in the um, technology and information systems of real-time water monitoring and uh, and that's how i came to uh, a a, really a partnership that we have now with xylem is through that that lens of technology Uh, however uh, my driver is policy. Uh, I'm. <laughs> if you ask me a lot of questions about about data management and how technology works, I can give you rudimentary answers. Uh, but uh, I'm a. It's a mission-driven program, and I'm a mission-driven person. So, um, and I created it, and uh, I'm, I'm happy that you know, Pace has given us that opportunity, and that we've been able to, you know, partner up with with Zion.
0: So before we get into how how that that actual partnership started with xylem right what were what was the catalyst how did you guys how did that come together i want to first ask how you and jess know each other because it's you i as i alluded (laughs) to in my my welcome there's a um there's a friendship there that i just i think would be great if our audience knew what the history of that is john you want to yeah I guess yeah. you gave me the cold call so
2: you can so you can kick off. Well, <laughs> yeah actually actually uh, it's it's funny you know, how, how this all happened. And back in August of 2018 I sent a uh, message out into the um uh the corporate abyss of of Xylem. <laughs> uh Because we wanted to uh, continue to ad- advance our our work with sensors we had we had the great benefit of the General Electric Company donating a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of real time monitoring equipment and sensors instrumentation and and related gear and xylem stuff was right at the center of that and after that was donated and we started thinking about upgrading, we had to decide well where were we where are we going to do this? And with Xylem having corporate headquarters in New York and being the leading company, we said, Xylem, we need to have a partnership with Xylem. I mean, that's just, that's just a given. So I don't even remember to whom I sent an email. (laughs) I just went through the corporate list, picked out a name that seemed like it had a title that made sense and send out an email in August of 2018. And to, um, uh, my great fortune, it, it landed on Jess's desk. And, um, and so, you know, our, <clears throat> excuse me, our friendship, uh, you know, emerged out of uh, out of work. But um, we, we had a rapport right away, uh, in great part because Jess was able to see immediately what it is we wanted to do. You know, we wanted to be part mm-hmm. of turning out that next generation of students who instead of learning on the job, once they've graduated, actually as part of their education, you know, learn about uh, water sensing technology and real time monitoring and, and that's role in the public right to know and Jess clicked into that just right away. So uh, our rapport. I don't think
1: we've ever ended a meeting on time since then. (laughs) <laughs> there's a running joke that no, no meeting with John and Jess ever ends on time <laughs> that's, absolute,
2: that's absolutely yeah. true
1: so, so John he reached me at, at, a, at a good point because um, you know at the time AT&I had been looking at um, a couple different sensing technologies um, and, and still are but um, you know more related to like public health um, and, you know, towards protection of communities and, and environment. And, um, you know, we knew that we could, that this technology um, was feasible. We knew it was something that we could do, but we were feeling stuck. You know, part of innovation is, is not just um, asking ourselves, like, can we make this thing and, and would it be impactful? Yet we had answers to that. We can make these sensors. We know it will be impactful. Um but the, uh, you know, another part of innovation is understanding well w- what what is the market. Does this market exist? Do we have to create a new market? And what I mean by market is um, who who stands to derive the value from this solution or this innovation, and and where is the willingness to pay? And so there, you know, it's just kind of, um, it's an unfortunate situation. We have a couple, you know, we sometimes have water problems where. Um, the public, uh, the general public need um, or threat is very clear um, and, and technical solutions could exist or could, you know, um, could be developed. Um, but there's kind of a gap, a gap as like a society um, to, to get us to, to implement or, or like mobilize um, towards that solution. And so when John, you know, so here I was in AT&I thinking about these technologies that we knew could be possible, but we're trying to figure out how to mobilize resources. And then, you know, John calls me and we're talking about, we start talking about the role that, um, that, that policy could play and had not just could, it has already done this in the past. There's precedent to this where, where policy can push technological innovation, um, and I, you know, I think in some of these pressing topics, this this might be what we need. And this is, you know, this is relevant to us as a company when when we're thinking about, you know, we're especially on an innovation team. We're looking at the next horizon. What are the next big problems that we want to try to solve? We might be so early on this um, that we that we need some kind of push. Um, so yeah, I was immediately, you know, attracted to this this idea that, that one. You know, a lot of a lot of John's students um, are are studying environmental policy and to think that we could be equipping them early um, with the knowledge of what's possible with technology so that they come to expect it when they when they enter the, the professional realm. Um, but also, you know, where where should Xylem be leading or innovating in, in the policy space? So, yeah, it's been a great friendship since then. Um, and we've been pulling in. As we go along, we've been pulling in lots of other folks from Xylem as well. So, this, you know, John now has many friends uh, within the company.
2: <laughs> well, that's great. Yeah, we, right. to... <laughs> yeah, we, yeah. we actually met in person at one point. Oh, <laughs> uh, we did. At yeah. the Cleveland Water Alliance Conference. And Jess said, you're John. Mm-hmm. I said, you're Jess. Wow. And, uh, but mostly we've been online.
0: Well, yeah, so. I'm sure. And then COVID happened. So, you know, yeah. here we all are back mm-hmm. to Zoom. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So then what kinds of, uh, maybe just to get a little bit more specific, what kinds of projects, things are you counseling, whether it's one, whether it's us with the innovation piece and what we're working on, um, in Xylem or a uh, John, what you're, what you're teaching and, and helping, um, your, your students learn, um, in the policy space, like what, how are we working together right now? What are a couple of the top things you're working on?
2: So w- one of the things that joins us in this work is that Xylem as a as a as a company mission and um, and our Blue Collab and our both in our policy work too at Pace uh, both subscribe to the same idea that people can and should know the quality of their water before they use it. As rudimentary as that sounds, uh, it is something that we that the public does not think about, uh, policymakers don't think about. You'd be surprised how many engineers don't think about it. Uh, even though when you get in your car, your car will tell you if your tire is a pound low. Uh, and I could go online right now and tell you the weather on Mars, literally, uh, for today. But there's nobody who can tell you the quality of your water before you use it. And the ramifications of that are, are profound. Uh, I believe that not just in the United States, but worldwide, we could prevent tens of millions of illnesses by giving people the ability and giving water systems and water utilities, the ability to know of the, the quality of water before it's delivered uh, or before it runs out of the tap. And that of course is an entire marketplace for Xylem. Uh, and and this is the this is the mission that our students wrap their arms around uh, is this idea that they could be part of a wave of innovation that makes this possible for some of the most Im- Im- important water parameters uh, um, for, for human health. And our interest of course, is also to uh, to get this out, into the marketplace and for there to be a market demand for it. You know, the marketplace is the delivery system for innovation, Um, but what prompts that innovation? And in in the environmental space, nothing drives innovation more than policies that essentially require it. Uh, We saw that with the Clean Water Act's technology requirements for removing pollutants from industrial discharges. Uh, That technology, that best technology parameter uh, spurred innovation, where now in the 21st century, we're eliminating pollutants from industrial discharges that back in the 1970s, we didn't imagine possible. So the question then is, why can't we do this for detection? Why can't we have the same technology Mm -hmm. policy driving innovation in detection of what's in water before we use it? the fact is that policy is not there so what our students are wrapping their arms around are both sides the innovation side uh, and the policy side and one of the things we believe is that if we can prove the importance of vi- and viability of those innovations then we can also prove to policymakers and to and to a company like Xylem, you know that uh, it is worth investing in the research and development uh, and getting those innovations out there. Uh, but we need you know, we need policy that drives it. So our students are learning how to how to how to manage and manipulate the real time data. They're learning how to run the technology, uh, with a, a a great gift very recently of an additional forty five thousand dollars worth of sensors from Xylem. Uh, they're operating with the newest generation of water quality sensors, and um, they are. I have a group of of, of computer science students who are driven <laughs> by the environmental policy concept of the, yeah. of the of the right to know the quality of water before we use it.
1: It's a lot of fun work, and so I've been kind of mentoring the team um, with John, the Blue Lab in the um, NYC Design Factory based at Pace University. And it's a lot of fun working with like computer science students and, um, and some design students as well in, in talking about trust and awareness, these, these very non-technical, um, hard to, uh, non-tangible things. And to be more specific, you know, we're thinking about a public right to know purveyance of that data um, would likely involve our, our local utilities. You know, in, in most communities, your your water's coming from a um, a local utility supplier. Um, and so they're really what we're getting at is is the relationship between a, a utility and their end consumer. Um, and so what we need to to understand if we if we want to you know come forward with data um, you know sensing and and data and digital solutions getting towards this public right to know well, we have to understand what value are we actually delivering? It is, is it a, an awareness, a value around awareness for the end consumer? Is it a value around building trust between consumers and their utilities? Um, so I think these are these are big, you know, big critical unknowns. And, and the students have really, as as John mentioned, they've really wrapped their arms around this as, as technical students too. And so it's been a um, really good um A project, a fun project to to be involved in. You know, the other thing, Amanda, where we've um, really been leveraging this relationship with John is, you know, of course, we have um, a a partnership with ENS Resources um, as our kind of government affairs liaison in in Washington. And so we've been able to, you know, take these conversations with John and, and understand how does this inform our Xylem's approach to, to government affairs and how does it, you know, inform what kinds of conversations uh, we, we want to be having with legislators and, and what kinds of, you know, upcoming policy changes we want to get involved in. So I think that'll be, you know, like a long-term, a long-term uh, relationship.
0: Yeah, that's that's great. I actually um, spoke with Eric Saperstein and Mark Hansel as our first uh, podcast of yeah. the year, mm-hmm. um, and so that was a really um, insightful conversation. But I love that this is like kind of all coming together. Um, so, just to expand a little bit on the the right to know, public right to know um, concept. Um, I know that you uh, were a key panelist at the ITP conference that we had for employees within Xylem um, just last month, and you spoke about this—the public right to know with provisions for water. Um, Just wondering if you could distill that down a little bit for us. Like, what does it mean, and you know, how is it really relevant to Xylem and our utility Mm -hmm. customers?
2: Sure. So. There's an easy way of explaining right to know. Uh, and uh, anybody listening uh, who has uh, walked into their supermarket pulled a product off the shelf and looked at the ingredients before they purchase it. You are exercising your right to know. Uh, the law requires those ingredients to be there so that you can make an intelligent decision before you consume the product. And that right to know and and, it, and, and you know it, it's a it's a term of art. Uh, in the policy and, and legal world, uh, and but not one that that the public necessarily uses all the time. Uh, but it has a long history. It dates back dates back to the 1960s when we when we uh, enacted uh, the first federal poison laws that required labeling of poisons, and then the Occupational Safety and Health Administration Act, OSHA, um, that requires a. Uh, a right to know for workers, the conditions they're working in and, and how to protect themselves. And then that made its way into environmental laws. Uh, you have a right to know if there is a um, a company or a municipality uh, discharging uh, waste into your nearby waters. And you can actually go online uh, to an EPA site, click on a map, open up the permit and know what that company is allowed to discharge. You have a right to know that information. You have a right to know if there's a toxic landfill nearby. Uh, so that right to know has is, is been embodied in law for a long time. The one place where it has not really um, made itself evident is in the use of drinking water and, and recreational waters. It's there conceptually. Uh, the EPA will tell you that the public has a right to know what's in their water, but what's missing? What's missing is the technology that actually tells you so. Uh, so, uh, you know, the big example we always use is the 1993 outbreak in Milwaukee where 403,000 people became ill and 100 people died from cryptosporidium contamination. It took a week to figure out what people were getting sick from. Uh, and the reason they knew people were getting sick is that the entire community ran out of antidiarrheal medication. Uh, that became their sensor. There was, no, there was no Imodium on the shelf in drugstores. Uh, and to this date, we still don't have a sensor that's affordable and mass marketable that tells you uh, if cryptosporidium is in your water. Uh, in Oregon, there's been an annual event of it. Uh, and, um, and, you, and boil water alerts are commonplace uh, in the United States. And in fact, uh, any public health person who's involved in water will tell you that illnesses due to water contamination are endemic on the planet. In the developing world, in the, um, uh, in the developed world, uh, it, they're endemic, and it's endemic in every single country. 300 million children, Um, die from water-related diseases every year. In the United States, there are 20 million illnesses every year from pathogens in water and 90 million cases of illness from pathogens in recreational water. But what's the issue here? The issue here is that just one mouthful and you can get sick. It's not like lead that accumulates over time. One mouthful and you can get sick. So the answer is, can you know before you drink it can you know before you swim in it uh, and that's a technological solution there's no there is no amount of <laughs> of chemical or chemistry or running to a laboratory and back at the speed of light is not going to happen it's a technological um, there's a technological solution there and that is where the right to know comes with with water you need immediate detection to exercise your right to know what's in your water before you use it and that immediate detection is comes from technology. It does not come from laboratory analyses.
1: Yep. And, you know, as a sensor person, I mean, I'm not underestimating the work that needs to be done to develop sensors that can do this kind of detection of, you know, complex detection in real time in situ. That's, that's difficult. Uh, I just don't believe that it's impossible. I really don't. I I think it's possible for us to, for us to develop these technologies, but then it comes back to the why, why am I developing the sensor? And who am I developing it for? And, 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 and who will buy it? Um, and yeah, this is where we come back to, you know, I, I do believe that there has to be some kind of policy push. There has to be, you know, um, a societal motivation for these technologies to, to come to fruition. I do want to talk about, I have a question for you, John, um, mm-hmm. because, policy policy changes um, can sometimes be viewed you know they can they can uh, policy can change so rapidly or or the changes can be so um, um, disruptive to like from the perspective of the utility who are our customers mm-hmm. so how something like public right to know um, or best available technology for for detection and monitoring how do you see this progressing in a way that doesn't overly burden um, or, or make life really hard for, you know, some utilities are already under-resourced and understaffed. And um, and so, especially from Xylem's perspective, they're awesome customers. How do we advance this space in a way that is good for public health and community and environment um, without making things just really hard for, for our customers?
2: That's a great question, and, and and the partial answer is that you ramp up first of all. You don't you don't drop it on everybody's head one day, uh, and you make, um, you know, you make all the parties and in interest, all the stakeholders, part of that phasing in innovation. And I think what we will find, if we ask the right questions, is that the water utilities who have been beleaguered by problems with their water, Mm -hmm. um, who are getting battered by their water customers, uh, would view the advancement in this kind of technology with great relief. Uh, And where policy comes in with drinking water in particular, drinking water is very highly regulated. You're allowed to analyze for it with the methods that EPA allows you to analyze for it. So integrating this into policy becomes very important. You know so you know even the, the water utility who could afford it in a, in a very well-to- do community uh, who wants to implement the best uh, the best technology there is, is probably just going to have to add that on top of their laboratory analyses you know that the EPA requires. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it has to be phased in. Uh, the stakeholders have to be part of how it's phased in. Uh, but I also think that there's an information gap, Uh, where education is necessary. Very few people know about the University of Arizona studies that says there's 20 million illnesses a year from drinking water. Uh, And even fewer people uh, know about um, um, the Illinois study uh, that there are 90 million illnesses from recreational water. And I just saw a study that came out recently that year over year, there's been a 400% increase and the number of people who are buying water filtration devices for their home. They are buying it for things they don't even know they are filtering out. They're, buy, they're buying it to protect themselves from the great unknown. You start adding all this information together and this education together, and you can see it's a time bomb. Um, you know, it, it, I spoke to Steve Gratis, who was the public health officer when the Milwaukee outbreak, he's, he's retired now, and he said, it's, it's just a matter of time before there's something like this happens again. Uh, and in, in fact, there are some public health officials that call the prevalence of, of uh, illnesses due to water contamination, a worldwide pandemic that's being ignored. Um, you put all this information together and you, set, you create a sense of common mission and you make all the stakeholders part of scaling up the innovation. Uh, You know, find out what they need, find out what they want, find out what their obstacles are to implement it. And then the federal government, in my view, should do what it did with the sewage treatment plant construction program in the 1970s put a massive amount of R&D and construction money into making this possible at, in water utilities throughout the country, and you know there's usually like an 80 percent, 20 percent federal-state match. Uh, but it should be a massive national uh, uh, effort, just like the construction of treatment facilities were. Um, time to upgrade the water delivery facilities. So it, it's doable. You know, it, it's not an easy answer. You know, it's not a one sentence that says, all right, everybody has to have censors tomorrow. <laughs> you know, you phase it in, you make financial assistance mm-hmm. and grants available, and you you, may, you have the stakeholders to be part of the planning process, whether it's through committee hearings or, or town halls or inviting people to come in and give testimony. And you, you do it in a civilized way where everybody feels like they benefit from it. The public wants it, you know, even if they don't know it's possible.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah and we so in this ITP collaborative um in which John sat on the panel we also had George Hawkins um the founder and CEO of Moonshot Missions and and formerly the uh, CEO of DC Water and you know he he provided some really interesting anecdotes um from that utility perspective that um again going back to these these ideas of, of trust and in, in relationship where Boil advisories, um, or you know, some kind of infiltration or contamination event that wasn't caught um, early enough, um, had a really had a really adverse impact on on that relationship between the utility and and the ratepayers. Um, and but he also had some you know provided some anecdotes of times where there was a suspected contamination. So they weren't sure, but they suspected something had happened. Um, and had alerted the general public and, and released a boil advisory really like early, preemptively, um, and then you know found out that maybe there wasn't actually a problem, maybe no need for the boil advisory. And so um, in the end, though, you know I think in in this example, DC Water had seen like an, an increase in, in positive in that positive relationship between the utility and the customer. Um, the customer, you know, they were happier that they had received some kind of communication and this demonstration of like transparency and and awareness had a really positive impact. But yeah, I think we'll see those, those kinds of utilities where that PR that relationship, maybe they have the funding um, or they're of a given size that that, that's relevant and and important to them. Um, But yeah, I think where, where the policy ramp up can be really helpful as for as the many small communities um, where they don't have, you know, where, where like the guy running your water utility is also running the wastewater utility and he's just working three different jobs. And so um, I think it can be really helpful for those kinds of, those kinds of customers to get them, make these technologies accessible to them and useful.
2: You know, you know what's interesting uh, when we have these conversations about um, about detection and real-time monitoring, uh, and I do it too. It's very very easy for us to get involved uh, in you know, what are the sensors, how do they work, and you know the importance of real-time monitoring. You have to flip to the other end, which is what Jess was just talking about. You have to flip to the other end, which is the receipt of information. So when a boil water advisory goes out, as went out in Pennsylvania, uh, community in Pennsylvania about a week or so ago, how do people find out that they should not drink their water and they should be boiling it? If they're listening to drive time radio in their car, if they happen to go now online and look at the latest news, uh, and when they do that, or or somebody calls them and tells them a relative, uh, really? I mean, you know, in in Milwaukee, Mm -hmm. um, people got sick from taking a sip of water in the drinking water fountain on their way out of Milwaukee before getting on a plane, and they went home and were terribly ill. That's all it takes. So if you're finding out, you know, five hours later on drive time radio, or because somebody called you two days later, you know, your mom calls you and says, I hope you're boiling your water. You know, that's not the way to find out. So this is also about communication. It's also about Mm -hmm. the 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 value of information in a timely fashion and it has a lot has a lot of parallels with the covid pandemic right now about detection about communication about tracing about you know what am i supposed to do uh i i drank the water do i have a problem now uh and you'll see these boil water alerts go out sometimes and what they'll say is um you know, you should boil your water. Contaminants have been detected. Um, call your doctor to find out when you can drink your water again. Really? You're going to tell 3 million people to call their doctor to find out when they can drink their water again? This is, not, this is so primitive. Um, that um, That's why I say we could be protecting tens of millions of people in the United States alone if we move this innovation forward, and we have the policies that drive it. And I think there'd be a great sense of relief amongst water utilities and others when they see the full dimensions of what this means from detection to communication.
0: Okay. So for me, that calls the question about where is the resistance being met? Is it really at the technology level? So we don't have the technology or the resources to implement the technology that we do have on a grand scale or our utilities pushing back and saying, well, once I have to start communicating with our ratepayers about this is what we have going on at all times, it's a resource strap, like it's too taxing. It's just too scary. Like there's too much to have to do. So what, you know, where is the resistance really yeah. coming in?
2: You know, I, I don't know that it's resistance. You know, mm-hmm. we have some business students also who, or who have double, double major in business in the Blue Collab at, at Seidenberg at Pace University. And we've had this discussion. And, you know, where they land is, um, you know, there is not going to be, and I have one student in particular who is studying the role of policy in driving innovation it, it, as, as part of her double major. And, uh, and you know, the question that the, the question that she brought up in our discussion is, um, if this is so highly regulated, uh, the drinking water space is so highly regulated, it tells you exactly what you can and and cannot do. How is Xylem ever going to have a market to Mm -hmm. deliver innovation if this is not if this, if there's no avenue for for real-time sensing to become standard practice, uh, you know, how is that going to happen? Uh, and if they if and how do we go to xylem and say, look, ignore the fact that nobody's going to buy your sensors if you develop them, just spend your money developing them. <laughs> you know, <anyway>. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I don't know how I, I, I have not had a chance to pose this question to your CEO, but I think I know the answer. Um, you know, th- there's no reason why xylem should be in a money losing proposition on this. And that's where policy comes in. And and in the ramp up, let's say there was five years of intensive research and development with 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 big time government funding, um, you know, that helps to develop not only the technology but the expectations about what that technology mm-hmm. could deliver I mean that's part of the, yep. the ramp up but you know in order for xylem to have a market the whole policy space has to open up uh and uh and and start moving us towards what's a clearly and obviously not just a 21st century solution you could make the case it was a late 20th century solution uh it's just under the radar mm-hmm. yeah and there's
1: you know, there's some during that ramp up. There's some very real questions that we have to answer from mm-hmm. from our perspective about what a potential solution uh, looks like, um, because we still don't we don't understand a lot about what um, what kind of awareness people want, and to what extent, um, and and uh, how so we could probably you know rank the top 5 you know threats to, to to you know waterborne threats to public health but there are many many you know chemicals and and contaminants emerging concerns out there so um so how many sensors are we developing which ones are the most important how sensitive do they have to be um how how accurate do they have to be are they screening sensors or do they have to be specific how cheap do they have to be? <laughs> that's are very real. Because if you imagine, you know, are we deploying these at homes or or a couple in every distribution network across the country? That's that's a lot of sensors and um, you know could require a significant investment. But we it is really difficult to answer those questions um, when we don't have a space in which to um, to test it out. Um, you know, the other question that, that I think we need to explore that, that could be really interesting. And John, you, you, you brought up, you know, um, COVID and, and kind of like the information campaigns around, around COVID. We've like in Ohio here, we had, you know, our governor's addresses every day. And, and I personally, I tuned in like every day for, for a couple months. Um, yeah, because I liked that awareness. And I think a lot of people did, they liked seeing that data and that and that update and then I think a lot of us we kind of stopped tuning in when when the information became pretty consistent or there weren't any major changes step changes that were particularly relevant we have to figure out if the same will the same thing happen with real-time water quality data for end consumers if my water is um, Fine to drink, or, or you know, not containing any obvious contaminants for a long time. Do I stop paying attention to that data? And the reason that's important is because if people stop paying attention and stop valuing, then we stop paying. Um, so we have to we have to under and I think we can learn a lot from from COVID because we learned a lot about how people take in information very rapidly. Um, but yeah, we first need we need an environment in which to answer these questions, um, I do want to say, Amanda, back to your question. You know, because Don said early on, I think another thing, another barrier we have is just this recognition that there is a problem to be solved. You know, that's something that Xilin can help too. You know, in certain ways, it's just shining a light and bringing awareness to these problems. And we do this, we do this through partnerships, like with, with Pace University, and we run these pro- projects, sprints, and then we, um, and then we talk about it, you know, with the external community. Um, and I think that's a way that maybe we can start getting some momentum, you know, as partners is let's, let's shine a light on, um, on this, you know, endemic pathogenic contamination um, in places like the U.S. where maybe we're not as a society acknowledging that it's actually happening and that there is a need, there's a very clear need for real-time monitoring.
0: Well, I mean, I feel like this topic is one that we could go on about, um, and I know, <laughs> Jess, you warned us in the beginning that you know you you never had a, a call with John and on time, and um, so I hate to stifle the the discussion because it's it's really great. Um, so my offer would be to to catch up with you folks in a few months here um, as we're starting yeah. to see sort of the. Um, progression of the pandemic come to an end, maybe we can uh, explore this conversation a little bit more and get an update on uh, where we're at with um, the current projects you're working on. But um, I do have a parting question for you both. Um, and so I'll, I'll have John, you answer it first, and then you can just, but um, what is the most important thing you've learned in this business, this industry so far?
2: Well, first of all, uh, if, uh, anybody looks into my background, <laughs> which includes a, uh, many, many years of suing companies and, uh, you know, uh, and, and fighting the good fight to track down, uh, pollution, uh, they, um, the fact that I, I've developed a close partnership with a company, it looks unusual in my, in my resume. Uh, but what I've discovered in, in Xylem, uh, and uh, and one of the reasons that at Pace University and Seidenberg School we're so excited about this partnership is that there is a real sense of mission there. Uh, it's not only about um, you know what products are profitable, and it has to be about that. It's not only about um, um, you know what do we bring to the marketplace that makes everybody go wow, uh, but you know it has to be about that. There is a real sense of mission. And every, and I you know I, I find it in Jess, uh, I find it in your your, your CEO's messages you know uh, and, uh, uh, and and it's been a a great reward to us and a great lesson for our students uh, who are looking at the marketplace of jobs and careers uh, to know that um, you don't have to look at it in a cynical way that you can combine your expertise with a sense of mission, the kind of mission, that sense of mission that Xylem has about, about uh, the world of water and, and blend the two together and perhaps be part of a, of a, of a new generation of innovation. And uh, it, it's been very, very heartening uh, for me uh, in particular, but also for our students and for everybody at the, at the Seidenberg School at PACE.
0: Thank you for that. What do you think, Jess? What's the most important thing you've learned in this biz so far?
1: Well, I'm also going to talk about Xylem. I promise it wasn't planned. Um, We weren't expecting this question, but I, uh, my only experience in the industry has been with Xylem. I I started with Xylem before I even got out of school. Um, I do feel like through, through these kinds of these projects, um, uh, I I think that xylem is a, I think we have a really um a really great opportunity and a great like team of people um to be really critical about how are we going to solve these problems um and and I really mean it because I'm seeing that we're we're forming teams um or we're re- recognizing that that the solution to water problems is not sometimes not even a technology Solution, um, you know, we're recognizing that this space is is incredibly complex, and it involves governance and and finance and um and you know social societies and and it requires diversity um, of people and perspectives and expertise. And I think we're pulling that you know all of this together really well. Um, I'm really excited to see how xylem is really like getting out in front and and making some you know some hard and critical statements about how we as societies are going to address these problems for for people who are really vulnerable i mean really that's what we're doing at the end of the day is we're um we need to make sure that like the environment and our drinking water is safe for people who are vulnerable um and i i do see that at, at xylem so yeah that's Probably the coolest thing I've learned is that the mission, the mission is real. Like as John said, it—it it is real. Um, yeah. So it's uh, we're doing good work.
2: No, I was just going to reiterate what I said. You have know, to spending a career fighting companies to protect water. Uh, it is such a delight to be working with a company that <laughs> where, you know, improvements may come out the other end for, uh, because we work together instead of, uh, instead of working apart. And it, it is a wonderful lesson for our, for our Seidenberg students to to see that, and um, and and I, I and I should mention as you know as part of that, Jess participates in our classes. Uh, she drops in and lends her, lends her expertise, which our students just value incredibly. Um, to um, to hear from somebody who, as she said, went from uh, you know essentially working while she was still in school till now, to a senior scientist position, and she's been a great example for our for our students.
0: Well, I I really appreciate your time, both of you, and very excited to continue this discussion at some point in the future. Um, To learn more about John's work in the Blue CoLab program at Pace University, click the link in the show notes. And don't forget to email me at amanda.holloway at xylem.com with show ideas or to be a guest on Solving Water. Thanks so much. The Solving Water Podcast is produced and distributed by Xylem, a global water technology company of more than 16,000 employees committed to solving critical water and infrastructure challenges worldwide. Stream, download, and subscribe.